So here's where we're at, whether it's the Bible that's on your app or the Bible in your lap. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're uh, walking line by line, verse by verse, through the Ten Commandments. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start in Exodus 20, verse 13. It's really simple today. It's so simple a caveman could understand it. You guys remember those Geico commercials? So two words in Hebrew, Exodus 20, 13. We'll get there in just a moment. We're going to end in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to see how Jesus deepens and develops this commandment that we are going to come in close on. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story, true story. So recently, I saw that there was a uh, tourist uh, from Tennessee who uh, came to uh, visit Myrtle Beach uh, with his girlfriend, and his whole plan, he was out on the beach, walking around, having a good time, his whole plan was to propose on the beach. All right, that's a good setting. Uh, not a bad proposal right there. I recommend that. That's good. And so he's got a good plan, but they start taking pictures, having a good time, and he goes to reach in his pocket for the ring, and it's not there. It fell out in the sand. Bad day. And so he, like, he's shocked. He's He's like scared. He's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get this ring back? And so he, he literally like flags down uh, the Myrtle Beach Police Department. They're out there on beach patrol. And there's a local with a metal detector. They get them involved and they get the canine goggles out. And it's just this group of people who are trying to recover something valuable. That engagement ring costs a lot of money. And, and you're like, I don't want to lose that. And it's in the sand. How am I going to get this? Good news. They found it. Good news. The proposal happened. And she said yes. Okay, so it was, a, it was a good day, it turned out. But what do we see happening, and why do I share this? It's because you see a group of people who are rallying together to protect and promote something valuable. And what we're talking about today is so much more valuable than an engagement ring. What we're talking about today is what God commands us to protect and to promote as his people, the church, at all costs. And we're talking about the value of human life. And so here we come to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's really simple. You shall not murder. That's it. That's it. You shall not murder. And whenever you start asking questions around, why is this even in here? Why do we even need to be told this? And where do we, where do we see examples of this today? In our world, just the questions start to, to become like a flurry, and they start flowing. And I, I want to start with clarity. One of our core values is we strive to give clarity. Uh, Jesus gave clarity. He wanted people to be clear on what mattered, not confused about what mattered. And so I, I want to give clarity around a definition of murder. Because the King James Version, maybe you have that. That's a, that's a good translation. It's not in, like a modern English, but it's a, it's a good translation. Uh, it says, you shall not kill, or thou shalt not kill. And actually, that's not the best translation because kill could mean a lot of different things. And uh, you're like, so if somebody breaks into my house and like, comes after my kids, I can't do anything about it? It's like all bets are off. No, it's, there's, that's different than you shall not murder. So murder is a good translation. Let me give you a definition. Murder is the deliberate taking of innocent life. The deliberate taking of innocent life. And this has incredible significance for us today because when you hear about you shall not murder or you hear you shall have no other gods before me or you shall not make any graven images or you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, you, you go through this and you're like, I'm not doing great. You're like, these are not by nature affirming statements. They kind of make us feel like we're failing and like who's keeping these? Which by the way, that's kind of the point. We are failing at this and that's why we're pointed to the author and perfecter of our salvation, Jesus, who's the only one who kept these. And the only way that we can keep these is if we rest 
our salvation in his finished work and work from that assurance. So if you feel like a failure, that's kind of like the point of the Ten Commandments, but, but you don't stop there. You go to Jesus, and he enables you to live the life that he lived. But we come to this, the Sixth Commandment, and we kind of take a deep breath. You shall not murder. It's like, oh, all right, man, one for ten. All right, I, I've got some relief over here. It's like, I'm really glad there was a commandment for Hitler. I'm really glad there's a commandment for serial killers. I'm really glad there's a commandment for mass shooters, but I'm not on the hot seat today, so I can just kind of kick back and be all easy chair. I would just say that would be a mistake. And the reason why is because, as we'll see, Jesus deepens and develops how we understand this by convicting us of more than just the act of murder, but he gets to the attitudes that, uh, that lead to murder. You see, according to Jesus, the sixth commandment not only prohibits violent acts of murder, but also the violent emotions and intentions in the heart that lead us to actually take a life. And that's where murder starts, by the way, with anger, with anger in the hurt that's nursed, that's gratified, that's indulged. You see, we can be 100% physically murder-free and still stand guilty before God. Why? It's because he looks at the heart before he looks at the hands. He's always going to a deeper level of our motives than what uh, our culture and what our society tends to see. And this is what makes the Bible timeless and timely because it speaks to all this with the sixth commandment. And sometimes the simplest things in life are the most difficult things in life. And the sixth commandment, it's only two words, but that doesn't make it easy. And while this commandment is very simple, it's also very, very emotional. It's a really tough topic to address because what we're dealing with today, if we really get down to it, is who lives and who dies. And this is why we preach through books and chapters of the Bible. It's because it leads us to topics that we might not otherwise pick. And it, it, it forces us and it situates us in a place to where we're going to look at the whole counsel of God and see how it relates to our everyday lives. And so here's a pretty heavy question. Have you ever been personally impacted by murder? And those of us who have realize how disturbing and how devastating it can be. There's three funerals that I've I've preached in 12, year, uh, 12 years as a pastor, three of about 10 funerals that I've preached that I, I pray, I, I hope, I never have to preach anything like it again. Two were homicides. One was a child. One was a teenager. Their innocent lives taken from them. And another was a suicide. And I remember sitting with and speaking with the families, preparing to preach these funerals and just remembering how hopeless they felt after their innocent loved one's life was taken, it's like the sky goes dark. But part of the hope comes when we realize how God knows what it's like to have his son's innocent life taken. Because think about what happened when Jesus died on the cross and he was murdered by us, but he was also murdered for us. The sky went dark and the entire earth shook. And that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like when your loved one's life is taken violently, suddenly, and tragically. The, the sky goes dark, and your entire world is completely 
shaken. And so I want to recognize with compassion that if you've walked through this, it's hard to walk back into this. And the only way we can is with the help and the hope of the gospel because I want to show you the difference between murder and the gospel. Murder is you're going to die so I can live. The gospel is Jesus dies so we can live. Murder is the guilty taking the life of the innocent, but the gospel is the innocent taking the place of the guilty. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. If you want a glimpse into the heart of God and the depths of the gospel, you could look at the sixth commandment. Because at the heart of the sixth commandment is a commitment to life. And and this makes sense because it comes to us from a God whose whole identity is defined by life. Is anyone more pro-life than God? Think about it. He's the creator and sustainer of life. And then Jesus comes to redeem and to reconcile and to restore life through his death. The Holy Spirit is identified as the spirit of life. And historically and globally, Christians, the church, have always been about three things. And these are distinguishing marks that have set us aside from majority culture. We've been pro-marriage. And we are pro-equality regardless of somebody's ethnicity. And we have been pro-life. From the womb to the tomb, the church is to have a whole life agenda. And so we love physical life. And as the church, we, we yes, yes, babies can, are, are a beautiful burden. We talked about that last week, okay? They're, they're a burden on the body. They're a burden on the budget, but they are a blessing. And we celebrate when babies are born. And it's not going to be too long from now. We're going to do what's called parent commissioning. So when babies are born, we bring them up on the platform, and we display this desire in front of the entire church community that we're going to partner with the church We're going to partner with parents to raise a generation in Christ. And we pray over those parents. We commission those parents to be the primary disciple makers in their home to make a difference for future generations in all eternity. And so we love it. We love physical life. We love spiritual life. It's why we baptize. It's why this Wednesday we're going to the beach and we're baptizing. Because what is that? What is the church celebrating? Life, eternal life, spiritual life. And I would just encourage you, if, this is, if, if your story is I've transferred trust fully and finally from myself to Jesus by faith and, and, and by his grace, if you have done that, if you've repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, but you've never been baptized by immersion and after conversion, this is your day. This is your day. We'd love to baptize you at the beach this Wednesday. We're going to the Myrtle Beach State Park. It's going to be a fun family get-together as a church. And we're baptizing, it, and it's awesome. We're about physical life. We're about spiritual life. But the way we're approaching this just enormous topic of life, that's really what the Sixth Commandment is about. It's about life, God being pro-life. So we're going we're gonna to have a similar angle as what we had last week. We're going to approach it with five questions that you might be asking, or if you hear it, you're like, yeah, that is, that is a fair question. I would like to know about that. So the first question is this. Why do we need to be told to not murder. It seems pretty obvious, right? Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you two reasons why we need to be told, even commanded, to not murder. Because murder has been normalized and murder has been popularized. 
Murder has been normalized. I don't know if you know this or not, but the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. Four men were responsible for 175 million murders. And that's Hitler, that's Lenin, that's, that's Zedong, and that's Stalin. Four men responsible for 175 million murders. And who knows what we're going to be saying a decade from now about the likes of Kim Jong-un, about the likes of Vladimir Putin, and, and other dictators who insist on promoting power over peace. Today we're inundated with news about mass shootings and the depiction of murders in music, movies, video games, and novels. And this is staggering. The average teenager, by the time you graduate high school, will have been exposed to 80,000 murders by the age of 18. So murder has been normalized. But murder has also been popularized. Publishers and producers have turned our strange preoccupation with murder into a for-profit industry. You've heard that sex sells? Well, another way to think about it is murder sells. Because the second most profitable book genre on Amazon, only behind romance and erotica, is murder mystery books. $728 million a year on this type of book to fill our minds with something that God says is not good and is, does not lead to flourishing, does not lead to eternity. And we go on our streaming services and we are quickly sold on all these series that showcase murder. It could be a southern scandal, it could be the family next door, or it could be the disturbingly popular series Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. I don't know if you've heard about this, you probably have but it graphically depicts the events surrounding one of the most depraved serial killers in U.S. history. It retells and details how he abducts, how he drugs, how he rapes, and how he murders 17 young men in Milwaukee, Wisconsin between 1991 and 1998 in an apartment going largely unnoticed. And for perspective, this show had the most views of any opening week Netflix show ever. And this show uh, is one of three shows in, in just the next Netflix archives that has logged one billion hours viewed. Only, only one of three. And it hit that milestone within 60 days. You start saying this out loud about what the shows like, shows like this are actually detailing and retelling, and you're like, nobody has any business reliving that, much less profiting off of that. But what's even more twisted is how there are producers who are profiting the amount of $300 million off of this show. And it was so popular, despite the outcries of the surviving family members of the victims whose abductions were retold, in the show saying, I can't do that. Do you, do you realize I, what trauma that caused? What devastation that caused? Despite that outcry, Monster is now becoming an anthology series that will further detail and further profit off of the retelling of more true grisly murder stories. And so what is the, how does the church respond? Well, first of all, if the world loves it, we probably shouldn't just an organizing principle for being an attractive alternative. And when the world normalizes, when the world popularizes 
what God demonizes, here's what happens. It desensitizes. It desensitizes. This is what Scripture calls having a hard heart. You know you have a hard heart when there's patterns of resisting the good things that God prescribes or rejoicing in the evil that God prohibits. And I want to tell you, the medicine for our murderous motives is a daily dose of the gospel that works itself out in repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is responding positively to God's heart. Why? So that we don't end up with a hard, unresponsive, desensitized heart. And one thing repentance does is it wakes us up and shakes us up to the reality of how intrinsically sinful and inerrantly broken we are without God. For example, like you may expect murder to show up like generations and, and, and books and maybe even millennia into the Bible after like all, the, all this corruption and scandal, but it actually shows up within the first four chapters, within the first family between the first siblings. Why did Cain kill Abel? It's because he nursed and gratified his anger, and God called it. He said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and it's about to pounce on you like a roaring lion. Proceed with caution. Guard your heart. And as we'll see, that's what God says to us. That's what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 5. Because he traced the first murder and every murder to an angry heart. And by the end of Genesis 4, you have this, this guy named Lamech boasting in how many murders he's committed. And from there, it's just a downward spiral. Murder becomes a recurring theme in Scripture, and it is to this day a recurring theme in society. So that's why we need to be told not to murder, because it's being normalized and popularized, and if we're not careful, we're going to get desensitized to something that God says has no place among his people. The second question is this, what makes murder so wrong? It's like, uh, <laughs> what, why is it why is it a totally different action to, to, to murder like a human as opposed to, to take the life of an animal? Like uh, Eleanor, she was in our backyard the other day, and she, I don't know what she was doing, but she had a hula hoop out. And there's all these flies. You guys see the flies? What in the world? Where the, it's just outrageous. And she had this, there was this fly that was flying, and she had like a hula hoop. And she's like, come down here, fly, let me kill you. And she was trying to kill the fly with a hula hoop. Probably not going to work very well. And, but in doing so, it's like, okay, that's not murder. Why is that any different than taking the life of, of an innocent human? Because if you ask 10 people, is murder wrong, there's a fair chance they'll say yes. But if you press them on why, then it's probably going to sound pretty surface level. Like, oh, you can't just go around killing people. Or that can't be good for society. But here's, this is what I love about the Bible. This is what I love about God's Word. It gives us the deepest response to every question. Murder is wrong because of how we are made. Murder is wrong because of how we are made. We are made as God's image bearers, preloaded with imminent dignity from the womb to the tomb. And this is why Darwinian evolution and atheistic evolution is so damaging, because it posits that you are not uniquely designed you have happened randomly over time and by chance, and nobody times nothing equals you, belittles the image of God. And this was the philosophy and worldview of one Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who has since propagated this ideology in the lineage of her disciples who continue to advance abortion. 
when you say this positively, if you see anybody, you see them as made in God's image. So that's what, what does the church do about this? We see one another as made in God's image. What would change if you saw your spouse, if you saw your, your peers, if you saw your, your brothers, if you saw your, your, your boss, if you saw your coworkers, if you saw your enemies as fearfully and wonderfully fashioned in the image of God? C.S. Lewis has a thought-provoking quote about this. He says, you've never met a mere mortal. It's a serious thing to think that even the dullest, that's a kind way to put it, may someday be a creature who, if you saw them, you would be tempted to worship them. So he's talking about people who have been bought back and brought back by the blood of Jesus, have been saved, are being sanctified, and they're headed to glory. And when they get there, their faces, our faces are going to shine. Our sins are going to be forgiven. We're no longer going to be insecure. We're no longer going to be afraid. We're going to be confident. And it's a, a, such a mind-blowing idea that if we were to see what one another would be like in glory, we would be tempted to bow down and to worship. The next question is this. Are there any exceptions to this? Are there any exceptions to murder? And there are three, and you might be clever, and you might think, yes, it's Jack Bauer, it's, it's Jack Reacher, and it's Jack Ryan. It's like, I would say, nice try, but not quite. There's, there's three reasons. The first are three exceptions. The first is self-defense. Self-defense. So when an officer of the law responsively and responsibly returns fire on a fugitive or a criminal who is jeopardizing the welfare and the peace of other people, self-defense. If someone breaks into your home and they go after your family and they go after your kids, self-defense. We are called to protect and to promote the image of God in this way. Another example of this is capital punishment. You may have heard that famous, that famous quote by Gandhi that says, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. You're like, oh, that sounds so good. Elon Musk recently dropped this quote in an interview. It just sounded like a sage. But it's actually a dig at biblical teaching, uh, if, if you see it, because the Old Testament actually prescribes an eye for an eye. And uh, here's, here's why it does, because uh, there's actually a, a universal principle at work right there, is that an eye for an eye is far better than a head for an eye. And that's what's being said, because when God prescribed eye for an eye in the Old Testament, there was a universal principle of justice at work. The punishment must suit the crime. God could have easily said, kill someone and pay a million dollars. That's how much a human life is worth. It's a it's, it's million dollars. But he doesn't say that. That's because you can't put a price on human life. And so as early as Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, you see, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And even the worst of criminals often recognize this. Have you ever wondered or just like stopped to think about whenever a mass shoot, shooter opens fire in public, at a mall, at a grocery store, at a school, and takes innocent life. Have you ever wondered why after the damage is done, they usually take their own life? Well, the reason why is because we can't for one, part of the reason why, well, there's no pat answer to this. There's, there's a lot beneath this. But part of the reason why is because we can't for one moment, even the worst of us, 
We can't for one moment detach from the image of God that echoes in our heart life for life. And this is what makes grace so amazing. It's a deep idea because Jesus was murdered by us, but Jesus was murdered for us. And therefore, we are guilty. We deserve to die. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The other example of this would be just war. And you're like, what's the difference between a just war and an unjust war? And maybe you could go chat GPT that later after the, after the service and get some, some AI answer to that. But the simplest way that I know how to put it, there's a lot behind it, a lot of factors that go in, is an unjust war is being waged to promote power. But a just war is being waged to protect peace. And what we see is that most wars, at least on one side, is being waged in an unjust manner. There's kind of two, two sides to this. It's one side could be fighting an unjust war, and another could be fighting a just war. A close example to that would be the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and the perpetrator of that crime being Vladimir Putin, who's trying to promote power. And Zelensky and the Ukrainians, uh, brothers and sisters, are trying to protect peace. And you look back in, in the archives, World War II, and all the wars that have been waged in Scripture, and it's, it's, there's no easy way to get into this, but there is a place where we can get involved in war in a way that promotes peace and the sanctity of human life. Number four, how does the sixth commandment speak to our culture? How does the sixth commandment speak to our culture? So there is obviously the confrontation around the senseless taking of innocent life, but then there's also the confrontation of the more subtle taking, or even, dare, dare I say, more acceptable taking of, of innocent life life. And it's, and it's all too common. And it's something that I, I think in so many ways outside the church don't know what to do with, but inside the church, we got to respond to this. And those two examples are suicide and abortion. Because the, the, the sixth commandment addresses suicide. And I want to speak in two ways right here. I want to I speak clearly, and I want to speak compassionately. Because nothing is more painful than having someone you love take their own life. And, and for those of you, you, for those of us who we've walked through this with family and friends, I want to start with, start with clarity. Suicide is the taking of innocent life. It is a form of self-murder. It rises to the level of a morally accountable choice. It is not the unforgivable sin but it is no less an attack on the image of God. And here's what I want to say. God never leads us to a place where breaking his commands is our only option. Satan will lead us there, but God doesn't. We interact with this and we look in Scripture. There are five instances of suicide in Scripture, all of which comes in the context of shame and defeat. And so similarly, when some of the more noble characters in, in Scripture uh, basically lobby to take their life and go before God and say, my life is no longer worth living, think about the likes of Job. Think about the likes of Elijah. God clearly views their feelings unfavorably. And here's what you see Job and Elijah 
having not followed through with those hopeless, desperate moments by taking their own life, their hope was restored as they continued walking with God. And if you're here, you're watching online, and you're having suicidal thoughts, I want to invite you, speak up, open up, but don't give up. If, you, if you've had suicidal thoughts within the last week, within the last 24 hours, dial or text 988. This is like the National Suicide Crisis Hotline. And you can get instant and immediate help. There, there is more support for this struggle and for this, this strain than any other point in history. And if you've had these th- thoughts from time to time, I want to invite you, open up to someone you know and trust and see a counselor. At Coastway Church, we believe in counselors. The Holy Spirit was described as the counselor. Jesus was described in Isaiah uh, 7 as the wonderful, or as, in Isaiah 9 as the wonderful counselor. And so we, we believe in this, because what, what does counseling do? Well, it, you have a knot in your life that you can't get loose. And then you go to counseling, and there's, there's someone from God, sent by God, who helps you loosen it up and relieve all of that tension that's in your life that you don't know what to do with. And I want to say, above all, take it to the Lord. Be reassured that his heart is to restore hope. It doesn't matter what Satan or someone tells you. Your life is precious, even when it feels pointless. And I want to overlay a scripture on the struggle and encourage you to memorize Galatians 6, 9. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. We see this in the life of Job, who wanted to take his life. We see this in Elijah, who wanted to take his life. And we need to see more of it in the church today when we come to this point. Speak up, open up, do not give up. And next, the sixth commandment calls out abortion. Since Roe v. Wade was codified in 1973, 63 million babies have been aborted. That's the equivalent of six holocausts and the combined population of both California and Texas. The question we have to ask is this. Is what's in the womb a human life made in God's image? That's the question. And if the answer is yes, we never have the right to take it. And the question gets asked, well, what about rape or incest? It's like that's 1% of cases. And as awful and terrible as that may seem, there's actually no place in Scripture where someone is given a passport to break a commandment because they walk through something painful. Adoption is an option. Foster care is an option Following through and having the Lord redeem what was done to you is an option. And we pray that families will rise up within our church and see this and be about this and adopt children and foster children so that we could be a movement of renewal toward the least and toward the last and toward the most helpless among us. Scientifically speaking, life begins at conception. Any embryologist will tell you that every human life traces back to a zygote. No one becomes something biologically different. You just develop from that original life. And biblically speaking, Bible and science, they're close friends, not sworn enemies, by the way. 
Biblically speaking, life begins at conception. And the only way to justify ending life in the womb and thinking that it's appropriate is to redefine personhood as beginning after God says it actually begins. And biblically speaking, you cannot divide the soul from the body. And the moment the zygote is formed is the moment that a human soul is united to a developing human body that bears the beautiful image of Almighty God. And you say, oh, how can you say that? Well, think about it. Where did Jesus' human life begin? In Mary's womb as a zygote. And so if that part of the existence was so non-essential to being human, why did God go to the trouble? Pro-life advocate Scott Klusendorf gives a very helpful response to the question, what are the differences between life inside and outside the womb? And it's SLED. So you may want to write this down or maybe remember this because it helps you think about this. S stands for size. The only difference between life inside and outside the womb is its size. Should we determine how human you are, by the way, and continue that logic by saying that someone who's six foot two is more human than someone who's five foot two? No, that's preposterous. No, nobody would actually say that out loud, but that's actually the logic behind abortion. Next L is level of development. Is someone who is 20 more human than someone who is 10? Again, you would never say that. Environment. Are we more human in a house than whenever we are walking outside? Or are we more human when we're walking outside than when we are in a house? That's the logic. And then dependency. Like, they're, you know, if they're, they're dependent... That's, that's the difference. Well, so are three-year-olds. So are 95-year-olds. We have a whole life agenda from the womb to the tomb. It is urgent. It is important to talk about this because one in four women will have an abortion by the age of 45. And I want to speak hopefully and gracefully to this. There is forgiveness when you're honest. But you've got to be honest to get to the grace. And, and, and if we're honest, the gospel, or, or, or the gospel is the exact opposite of abortion. Abortion is you will die so I can have a life. The gospel is I will die so you can have a life. Abortion and suicide, they are not the unforgivable sins. We can be forgiven because Jesus forgives and gives life to people who take it. That's why he cries from the cross, Father, forgive them as his life is being taken. The fifth question is this, last question. How does Jesus deepen and develop the sixth commandment? How does Jesus deepen and develop the Sixth Commandment? We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5 right here. This comes in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to see Jesus' interpretation of the Sixth Commandment. And it's going to show us that murder starts in the heart long before it's committed with the hands. So I'll read this with you, Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, that is to hold somebody in contempt to the point of wishing they would disappear. It's the strongest language that you can use in that culture. You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So it, what's interesting is if you, if you keep reading Jesus' progression of thought in verses 23 to 26, he goes on to list two groups of people in two different places who we are likely to direct our anger at. He talks about your brother at the altar, so he's thinking about the church. He's thinking about Cain. He's thinking about the home and how anger is going to affect your relationships in this setting in the home. And then there's the accuser in the court. That's people in the world. That's people outside the church. And what he's saying is anger affects all relationships. And so 
it's important to understand how does murder actually start with the heart. And I want to give it to you really simply with our wishes, with our words, and with our failure to witness. That's how murder starts in the heart, with our wishes, with our words, and with our failure to witness. Murder starts in the heart by wishing certain people would suffer and fail. So what happens is there's probably somebody in your life, just kind of maybe assume the worst about yourself for a moment. This is helpful. It can lead to repentance Um, because we tend to assume the best and never like actually get to it. There's probably somebody in your life who you would take this like inner delight in seeing suffer. There's probably somebody in your life that you would get like this secret satisfaction if they were to just fall and fail. Who is that person we're talking about them? And now that we're clear on that, this happens all the time. It happens above us and around us. It's like a secret delight in the misfortune of other people. And it's like we're playing this sick game. When you say it out loud, it's like, is my life going better than theirs? If so, that's salvation for me. It's like, what? Where did, where did we get this? And that's how murder works. It, it starts with not wanting people who violate your will around any longer. What makes us angry to the point of it being unrighteous is people violate our will, and we turn around to attack them back. And it's, it's going back to eye for eye instead of eye for the cross. Because that's the way we're supposed to look at it through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. We know where this is headed. He's already won. And so anybody in or around your life that you wish would disappear, that you wish would suffer, that you wish would fail, that's where it starts. Next, by our words. Notice how Jesus is talking about words, whoever insults, whoever says. So insulting or attacking. I want to tell you guys, uh, we, were, we were spending some time with, with some good uh, friends of ours uh, this week, and uh, they, they had a camper at Ocean Lakes Campground. And I just want to tell you guys, by the way, if China sends another spy balloon, I'm going to Ocean Lakes Campground because I grew up in the country. I know when people are ready, so I feel pretty good. And so Ocean Lakes, it's, it's happening over there July 4th, which, by the way, you've not experienced the land of the free and the home of the brave until you go to Ocean Lakes Campground on July 4th. So that, <laughs> we leave, we leave, and... Uh, we are in the parking lot across from Ocean Lakes Campground, and we're getting hibachi takeout. It was very, very good. I recommend it. Uh, and we, we also got some duck donuts. We're just, ha- just joyriding, having a good time. <laughs> and uh, there was a Cadillac Escalade and, like, a luxury liner, brand new off the assembly line Honda Odyssey. I had, like, car envy. It's like I'm 34 years old. It's come to this. And so... Uh, the person in the Escalade dropped a piece of trash out of their car, and the person in the Odyssey escalated it, like, in, in an intense way, and, like, goes, who, who are you? Who do you think you are for littering? You shouldn't do that. Like, who? And, and like, I, I kind of turn away for a moment, and next thing I know, I turn around, and they are out of the car hurling insults at each other, calling each other pigs, saying they don't deserve to live. And I thought for a moment, if they had an invisible ring and could make the other person disappear without anybody knowing, they would do just that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Did, they just sudden, did that just suddenly happen? No, there was a reserve of anger that was bubbling beneath the surface long before that altercation. And I want to tell you, the seed of every sin lives in every human heart. And if we indulge, if we gratify 
if, if we give ourselves to that anger, that is where it leads, and it's insulting people, it's attacking people, it's gossiping about people, which, by the way, what is gossip? It's confessing someone else's sin for them. And it's like, Christians, we can be the best at this. How do we be an attractive alternative different from the world, called out from the world? Well, the world assumes the worst and attacks with words. The church assumes the best and addresses the rest. You want to see the difference? That's, that's the way the church is called to relate. And I just want to ask you this. you ever fantasize about telling somebody off? Anybody? <laughs> just me? Okay, all right. It's like you, you literally have a speech in your mind, and you envision you just like sticking it to them. It's like maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your boss. Uh, maybe it's somebody who betrayed you. And you think about what you say, you, you see them reacting in shame and defeat, and you see them just like triumphant af- after, the, after it goes on, and you're like, that's murder. It's in all of us. You're quick to think and speak insults to people by our words, lastly, by failing to witness to those God sends us. By failing to witness to those God sends us. There's this verse, in, and this is a biblical principle, is that we are accountable before God, before those far from God, but close to us. It's called the doctrine of moral proximity. We have a responsibility and an accountability to get the gospel to those who God puts in our life. And so Ezekiel 33, 6 in the Old Testament, you talk about this watchman who sees danger coming, who sees an army invading and doesn't warn the civilians that the blood of those civilians is on the hands of the watchman. And Paul takes this and he interprets it later in Acts 20, 26, and he says, I am innocent of the blood of all people. Does that mean that he was always like preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel to every single person he met? No, it meant that he was faithful with those in front of him. He was faithful to share with the, the message with those close to him. And so if we were to summarize the sixth commandment, here's what it is. It's the call to protect and it's the call to promote life. That's what it's about. And you may ask, like, why would we do this? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. It's because Jesus first did this for you. You see, the gospel can only be personal when we see that Jesus was murdered for us, but he was also murdered by us. You may have seen or heard about the movie The Passion of the Christ, which was a retelling of the events leading up to and, uh, and through Jesus' crucifixion. Well, Mel Gibson was the director of that, and... Uh, he, he actually shows up in one scene of the movie. You don't see his face, but you see his hand, and it was his hand that dropped the hammer that nailed Jesus to the cross. And the reason why he wanted that detail included is because he knew that it was his sin that put Jesus there. And I want to ask you, have you ever had that moment where you say, Jesus was murdered by me, I'm guilty, but Jesus was murdered for me. There is grace. And so instead of condemning and cursing those who nailed him to the cross, Jesus cries from the cross, Father, forgive them. And I can't help but think that if we could see him doing that for us, it will compel us to do that for those who we feel like are nailing us to the cross. Who do you want to see suffer? Who is that person? Think about it. And I, I want to invite you, will you stop trying to punish them? And will you start actively 
praying for them. This is the Jesus way. And in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 26, at the end of this, this teaching where Jesus interprets the command, he says that when you give full satisfaction and full vent to your anger and it starts to control you, that you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And we have a declining balance. We've, we've built a prison that we don't have the key to get out of. But I can tell you that Jesus paid the last penny and he was punished for those who were punishers so that we could go from punishing to praying, so that we could go from breaking other people to blessing other people. And here's, as I was feeling just the weight of this, this subject all week, it's been a hard emotional week of preparation to stand up and deliver this to you. Thank you for praying for me. But I was thinking, would Coastway Church be a church that's known for being life givers instead of life takers? And what I want to do right now is I just want to invite you to bow your heads, open your hearts, and I want to pray that over us right now. Father, we give you, we give you credit for not treating us as our anger deserves. And we recognize the anger that lives in all of us. And we want to lay that down and surrender that before the foot of the cross and ask that you would cover it, that you would credit to us your righteousness, that you would cleanse us of our unrighteous anger that leads to murder, and that you would raise up a people who are life givers with our wishes, with our words, and with our witness. This we ask and this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.